Hi, welcome to Bookie, which unlock big ideas from world bestsellers in audio, text, and mind map. Please download Bookie at Apple Store or Google Play with more features, get your free mind snack now. Today we will unlock the book Who Says Elephants Can't Dance. The book was written by Louis V. Gerstner Jr. Gerstner was IBM's former CEO, and it was he who helped turn the fortunes of the computer giant around. Before he took up the reins at IBM, the company was $16 billion in deficit. The media said it already had one foot in the grave. After Gerstner took over, the tech giant rose to become one of the most profitable companies in the world. Who was Gerstner? and why was he so powerful? Let's take a glimpse at his story. Gerstner was born, one of four children in Mineola, New York on March 1, 1942. His family was average yet unusual. Average because Gerstner's parents started their married lives employed as a run-of-the-mill milk truck driver and a low-level salesperson. Unusual because Gerstner's parents were not content with the way things were. Gerstner's father worked his way up from being an ordinary driver to becoming involved in dispatch. Similarly, his mother forged ahead from selling real estate to become an administrator at a community college. Under the influence of his parents' words and following their ambitious habits, Gerstner grew to be restless and enterprising. However, what contributed still more to his success, Guaranteeing him and his siblings a bigger platform in the future were the sacrifices his parents made for their education. Their meager salaries were not enough to support the expensive tuition costs for four kids, but this was their priority. To make ends meet and fund their kids' studies, they had to mortgage their property every four years. Through their example, Gerstner's parents nurtured his attitude and motivation. After finishing high school in 1959, he won a scholarship setting him off on his life path to Dartmouth College and later Harvard Business School. Graduating from there at the age of 23, he joined the business sector, quickly gaining senior roles in the U.S. companies McKinsey, American Express, and RJR Nabisco. Gerstner built his reputation over more than two decades in the business world, becoming a leading executive, he gained renown in the industry. Once a market behemoth, the decline of IBM caused alarm across the U.S. business community. Gerstner's brilliance led the ailing company to reach out to him for help. After various twists and turns, Gerstner took up the reins of IBM when the mega-company was $16 billion in deficit. But throughout his nine years of leadership, he turned the tech giant around from deficit to profit. The company's share price rose tenfold, making it one of the most profitable companies in the world. For most of Gerstner's career in the business world, there was a preconception that small companies were agile, responsive, and efficient, while big companies were slow, bureaucratic, and inefficient, like lumbering elephants. Gerstner regards this as nonsense. Big companies have unique advantages. They are able to make bigger investments, take more significant risks, and stake their capital behind longer-term developments. Gerstner says he had never experienced a small company that doesn't wish to grow, to become a giant. He has shown that even the big elephants like IBM can dance. The book we are unlocking today, 
who says elephants can't dance is based on Gerstner's own experience at IBM. In this business autobiography, he looks back for the first time at the glorious days of transformation at IBM. In this book, from his first appointment to his taking the helm of IBM, the businessman tells of both internal changes, and external strategies. To continue, we will unlock this book in three parts. Part 1 is about the difficulties of the former market giant. Part 2 explores IBM's internal changes, analyzing how Gerstner restructured and addressed the cohesion of teams and their working practices. Finally, Part 3 illustrates IBM's market strategy, becoming a comprehensive solutions provider and developing e-business. Part 1, The Former Market Giant Got Into Trouble It was in the United States in 1911 when Thomas J. Watson Sr. merged several small companies to form the International Business Machines Corporation. Through the first half of the 20th century, IBM's business machines embraced a broad and largely unrelated lineup of commercial products, everything from scales and cheese slicers to clocks and typewriters. Computers were among those business machines, and IBM became a pioneer of the technology long before most people had any idea how computers would transform their lives. In the 1950s, IBM launched a revolutionary new manufacturing business, the mainframe production line which became hugely successful. IBM had become one of the eight largest computer companies in the United States by the start of the following decade. And in 1981, the company launched the world's first personal computer. Nicknamed Big Blue, IBM has long been perceived as a symbol of U.S. technological prowess through the company's association with computer technology. The company holds a special position in the U.S.'s political economy as well as in people's hearts. By the 1990s, however, Big Blue had stopped dancing. Once a pillar of the industry, the mainframe business's annual revenues plummeted from $13 billion in 1990 to below $7 billion in 1993. On January 19, 1993, IBM announced a loss of $4.97 billion for the fiscal year 1992. At the time, it was the most significant annual corporate loss in U.S. history. To make things worse, IBM's predicament did not improve, in 1993, IBM lost $16 billion. The market became pessimistic about IBM's future. The famous media personalities Charles Morris and Charles Ferguson wrote in their book Computer Wars, there is a serious possibility that IBM is finished as a force in the industry. Paul Carroll, IBM's beat reporter at the Wall Street Journal also worried that IBM will never again hold sway over the computer industry. Even the usually cautious economist claimed that IBM's humiliation is already being viewed by some as a defeat for America. Many media pundits were so disappointed with IBM that they soon collectively came to the conclusion that the company was in the process of collapse. Knowledge of IBM's parlous state came to the attention of Gerstner, who was then the CEO of RJR Nabisco. Even though he had been a client of the behemoth, he was not about to tie his fortunes to IBM at this time. His opinion of IBM formed when he was still a management consultant at American Express. He sensed IBM to be arrogant, a company driven by its technological talent. 
therefore he didn't really consider himself a good fit for the company. In the winter of 1992, John Akers, IBM's chairman and CEO was about to retire. Consequently, the company set up a search committee to find IBM's next leader. Jim Burke, the head of that committee approached Gerstner and asked him to come to IBM as CEO. Gerstner knew that IBM was not just a company but an American icon. To take over as its CEO meant putting himself in the spotlight. Every decision would be discussed and judged, which was not compatible with his low-key nature. Besides, he didn't think his expertise in management consulting would fit a tech company. Back then, people's pessimistic views on IBM's market position also hampered the quest to recruit a new leader. On that account, it is safe to say that Gerstner was well aware of these discussions and didn't want to get involved in this mess. However, Burke refused to give up on winning Gerstner around. He even mentioned President Bill Clinton, saying he would ask the president to contact him. You owe it to America to take the job, Burke said, trying to appeal to his patriotism. In Burke's view, IBM was a damaged American treasure, and Gerstner had a responsibility to fix it. Tom Murphy, another lobbyist on the committee repeatedly made the point that Gerstner's track record as a change agent was exactly what IBM needed. Moreover, he felt IBM's problems weren't fundamentally technical in nature. Murphy kept emphasizing that, the challenge for the next leader would begin with driving the kind of strategic and cultural change that had characterized a lot of what Gerstner had done at American Express and RJR. Perhaps Burke influenced Gerstner, or perhaps Murphy reassured him. Maybe Gerstner was already preparing to leave RJR where he had been unhappy with the status quo. It may equally have even been a fortuitous combination of all three factors. Whichever way, Gerstner accepted the search committee's invitation. Perhaps, just as good hunters are born with a keen sense of smell to seek out suitable prey, the committee sensed Gerstner's inherent courage to take up a real challenge and embrace the IBM offer. Gerstner's appointment as the new CEO of IBM was announced on March 25, 1993. Burke had high hopes for Gerstner, saying at the press conference, Lou Gerstner was the first person I talked to on that list and consequently had the code name Abel. I knew all the other candidates, and I knew them all well. There isn't another candidate that could do this job any better than Lou Gerstner will. Gerstner was held in such regard. When he arrived at IBM, what changes did he bring to this mighty but ponderous elephant? Let's go forward and find out in the next section. Today we are just sharing limited content. To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller please download our app. Just search for B-O-O-K-E-Y at Apple Store or Google Play, get your free mind snack now.